Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. The Pulitzer Prizes were announced this week, and lots of great books were honored. And surprise, surprise, we featured a few of them before on NPR. In a bit, we'll hear about the late Winfred Rembert, whose autobiography, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South, just won a prize for biography. The Pulitzer folks call it a, quote, searing memoir in prose and painted leather that celebrates black life. But first, reporter Andrea Elliott spent nearly a decade following Dasani, a young girl living in poverty in Brooklyn, New York. And that reporting turned into a book about poverty and how difficult it is to escape, titled Invisible Child. And Elliott makes this great point in this interview with Here and Now's Jane Clayson. She says she didn't follow Dasani because she was extraordinary, because focusing on the few extraordinary kids that make it out of poverty distracts us, absolves us maybe from caring about about the other 99%. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. On the Code Switch Podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. In 2019, when the school bell rang at the end of the day, more than 100,000 schoolchildren in New York City had no permanent home to go to. Children are not often the face of homelessness, but their stories are heartbreaking and sobering. Childhoods denied, spent in and out of shelters, growing up with absent parents, often raising themselves and their siblings. In 2013, the story of a young girl named Dasani Coates took up five straight front pages in the New York Times. The oldest of eight, Dasani and her family lived in Brooklyn in a decrepit city-run homeless shelter offering a rare look into how homelessness directs the course of a life. New York Times writer and Pulitzer Prize winner Andrea Elliott was allowed to follow Dasani's family for almost 10 years. The book Invisible Child is out, expanding on Andrea's reporting. And Andrea Elliott joins us now. Welcome to Here and Now. Thank you so much for having me. So you met Dasani in 2012. Uh, Dasani, her parents, and her seven siblings lived in one room in a homeless shelter in Fort Greene, which is a neighborhood of Brooklyn. Tell us how you met her, and, and what was she like? Well, I'll never forget the first moment I saw Dasani and her family. I was standing outside the shelter, and Chanel, her mother, was walking at the front of a single-file line, trailed by her seven children and then pushing the stroller with the baby. And that image has stayed with me ever since because it was so striking, the discipline that they showed to just walk in single file, the unity, the strength of that bond. I would later learn from Chanel that that was how she had been raised to survive the street and family is everything, that bond is everything. So that's the image that stayed with me. But Dasani is the child of the group that stood out. And you mentioned the room they were living in. The way she described her room in one of our first interviews was, it's like 10 people trying to breathe in the same room and they only give you five windows. Hmm. 
from the very beginning, I felt just so drawn to Dasani um, because of her ability to articulate not only the injustice of her life, of being living in this way, in this mouse-infested shelter and being forced to wake up every morning in these conditions, but then also the promise of her life, which was all around her and even out her window. She would sit on her windowsill every morning and look at the Empire State Building. That was the way her morning routine began. And she told me she did that because it makes me feel like there's something going on out there. And that something is what I believe this book is about, is the tension between what is, what was that that year and what continued to be her reality and the thing that she wanted for her life. Well, Dasani's story is remarkable. It is compelling. It is difficult. It's, it's horrifying in many ways. I mean, Dasani and her parents um, and her siblings lived a difficult life, and her parents were in and out of jail for stealing and fights and drugs, and child services showed up on 12 occasions. Dasani was the oldest child, but in many ways she was the parent, right, to her seven younger siblings. And I want to pick up on something you just said that despite the difficult circumstances, Dasani was so full of potential. You write that few have both the depth of Dasani's troubles and the height of her promise. How did those two things collide as you watched her childhood evolve? You know, that was from a conversation I had with her principal, Paula Holmes, who um, passed away. She was a remarkable woman, and she saw such potential in Dasani. I believe Ms. Holmes would also say that while she is a gifted child, she is not an exceptional child. Her problems and her promise are quite representative of poor children. Many children just like her exist. And I didn't choose to write about Dasani because she was extraordinary. I think she was special within ordinary circumstances. And that's such an important distinction because I think that the stories that we tend to celebrate and and understandably so are the stories of the one kid who made it out. It kind of lets, lets us off the hook because it allows us to say, if you work hard enough, if you are gifted enough, then you can beat this. And what we rarely ask is, why don't the other 99% make it out? Children like Dasani, who are just as willing, just as capable, just as talented, but who are barraged with problems that are not of their own making and are not um, their fault and are bigger than them. And I think if we look at Dasani's trajectory, we see a different kind of story. We see a story of a, of a girl who's trying to not escape. This is not Dasani's hope for herself. Her, her hope for herself is to keep, as she's put it to me, her family and her culture close to her while also being able to excel. And I think rather than focusing on the escape from a neighborhood, what we should be doing is looking more at the problems that children are trying to leave behind and where those problems come from and what might fix them. We'll speak to that a little bit because Dasani's story um, is emblematic of that. I mean, after her family leaves the homeless shelter, she is accepted to the Milton Hershey School, which is this tuition-free school in Pennsylvania. She thrives there, at least for a time, and she writes in her journal, I believe I can achieve my dreams in this school. But despite this extraordinary opportunity, she talked often about just wanting to go home. 
right? As difficult as that home life was. So talk about that and the significance of going to that school, being given this opportunity, and then kind of leaving it. Yes. When Dasani left home, the family lost a critical part of their system because Dasani was, as the oldest daughter, a very crucial help to her parents. Right. She was changing diapers and she was feeding the kids and she's taking her brothers and sisters to school. I mean, she she was their parent. By the time most school children in New York City are waking up to go to school, Dasani had been working for probably two hours. Her parents were overwhelmed. Dasani saw that and she was trying her best to help them. She carried huge burdens. And when she got to Hershey, those burdens sort of lifted and she felt this peace, and she was able to focus and concentrate, and she, she actually took off and started to really thrive. She made huge leaps in math. She had been two grade levels behind. She joined the track team and then later the cheerleading team. At home in her absence, things started to fall apart. Dasani feels that it's because she left. Her parents would tell it differently. They came under the monitoring of the child protection agency, the vast majority of these families are being basically investigated for parental neglect, which is different from abuse. Those are the two forms of child maltreatment. Abuse being when a a parent wants to intentionally inflict harm. Neglect is more about the failure to provide. So the failure to provide adequate shelter, the failure to provide adequate clothing. So Dasani blames herself because the children are placed in foster care. She blames herself because she feels like she abandoned them. And in her absence, they were placed in foster care. Had she been there, the family operated differently when she was there. And what happened to Dasani? I mean, this story doesn't have a happy Hollywood ending. Dasani left the Hershey School. And where is she today? Her life trajectory does not land in the way that popular culture wants it to as someone who has escaped poverty. But she's making it on her own terms. She graduated high school, becoming the first in her family to do so in her immediate family. She started classes at LaGuardia Community College. So she's making her way on her own terms. And to her, that means doing both things, keeping her family in her life while also taking strides forward. You know, it's one thing to learn the life story of one child in such often horrifying detail, but then multiply that across so many other homeless children in New York City and Baltimore and Chicago and Detroit. I mean, it becomes this unbearable, real moral failing, right? Are we really a nation that sweeps these people, real people, under the rug, turns a blind eye? Where do we shift this? How do we change this, Andrea? What I hope is that people will read this book and start seeing beyond labels like homeless and poor because they are limited and they don't really describe the broader truth, which is that there is this deep historical context and that these are very complicated problems, but that is not a reason to sort of turn away from them. The material reality of Dasani's life, her homelessness, her family's lack of money, is merely the point of departure for understanding her human condition. And the more that readers engage with her, the clearer it becomes that every single one of these stories is worthy of attention. Andrea, what do you want us to remember about Dasani's story? 
I think I want people to never lose sight of the child who went to her window every morning the year I met her as an 11-year-old and looked out at the Empire State Building because it made her feel like something better was out there waiting for her. The hope of this story is that it's her vision for herself and our vision for children like her to not lose sight of that. That is that is my biggest hope. That's Andrea Elliott, New York Times reporter and author of Invisible Child, the story of Dasani and how homelessness shaped her life. Andrea, thank you so much for your work and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Winfred Rembert has lived through a lot. He picked cotton as a kid. He was arrested as a teen at a demonstration for civil rights. He was nearly lynched after he broke out and was sent back to prison for seven more years. One of the only ways he could manage to process all of it was through making art. Before he died last year, he wrote about his story in the book Chasing Me to My Grave. His wife, Patsy Rembert, along with Aaron Kelly, who helped him write the book, talked to NPR's Debbie Elliott about Winfred's life and how he found the confidence to start making art. The late Winfred Rembert documented his life with art. He carved figures in leather and painted scenes from rural Georgia. His new autobiography, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South, features images of fishing in the culvert or dancing in the juke joint, but also picking cotton, escaping a lynching, and working on the chain gang. The author Aaron Kelly worked with him to turn his life into a book. Winfred's wife, Patsy Rembert, also influenced him. So he didn't want to tell his story for a long time. He, he would talk to me, and uh, he said, no one's going to believe me. But we got some of this stuff documented. And I, I feel like him telling his story, he's telling a story about a lot of more black people who endured these things, who didn't have a voice who couldn't find a a safe refuge to talk about it even today. Some people won't mention what happened to them or what they saw. It's a lot of things went on in the South that never reached the papers. No one wants to talk about it, but they happened. These things happened. Aaron Kelly, the the simple, straightforward, matter-of-fact way of recalling the events of his life has great power in this book to me. Uh, there's no social commentary really necessary because you can just plainly see what was wrong with a social system that treated people as less than. I felt it was important, and Winford agreed, that the story speak for itself, that there would be no moralizing, that it wouldn't be presented in any kind of sentimental way, and that Winford's voice would be the centerpiece of the book Um, and that it would sound like Winfred. A pivotal moment for him 
is after he becomes active in the civil rights movement, and he narrowly escapes with his life after being attacked by a white mob. Winfred and Patsy actually had a conversation about what happened then um, for a story core back in 2017. And I'd like to listen um, to a little bit of that conversation. Now, I'm 71, but I still wake up screaming and reliving things that happened to me. It was a long time, honey, before you knew. I didn't want to scare you away. When you finally told me, I was devastated. Yeah. Last night I fell out of the bed fighting somebody in my dream. So I'm still running, trying to save my life. It stayed with him his whole life. It never left. He said it was like a movie replaying over and over in his head. And when he'd go to sleep, it would all come back vividly to him in his dreams. And it did follow him to his grave. How did making the art about it help him? Well, I don't know whether it actually helped him that much, but it gave him an outlet to tell the world about what had happened. I would like, um, if you would, Aaron Kelly, to describe for us his painting that's called All Me. Sure. It's a painting of prisoners in black and white stripes. Their faces are grimacing. They're twisting and turning throughout the canvas. And as he describes the painting, all of these faces, all of the people represent himself because he said that when he was on the chain gang, the conditions were so brutal and so difficult, he had to be more than one person to survive. These paintings, there's several that that depict chain gangs, and they all have that abstract quality, and then they pull you in. Yes, I mean, this was an extremely brutal situation where the prisoners were basically tortured sometimes through the work itself and sometimes through forms of punishment that were inflicted on people in order to keep them subordinated, keep them broken, to break them, really. Um, So it was a struggle for one's sanity. It was a struggle to maintain some sense of identity and personhood under these horribly degrading and brutal conditions. So while he was in prison, he learned how to tool leather, He learned it from an older prisoner, and that later becomes the medium for his art. Can you describe his process for us, how he came to do this as a form of art? He would make pocketbooks and stuff like that. And he would make such beautiful pictures on the pocketbooks until I said, you know, and he could draw. He would draw people at our PTA meetings and stuff. And I said, honey... Why don't you put your life story on that leather? Nobody is doing that kind of work. And for a long time, he resisted doing it because he didn't feel like anyone would be interested in anything he'd done in that fashion. And finally, he did a picture, and he gave it to his friend as a Christmas present. And um, his friend sold it and gave him the money for it, and, and that was a spark for him to see that people would be interested in some of the work that he was doing and that it was good enough to be bought. I think he felt like he had some talent as an artist 
that he had never realized. And so he um, he began to create works of art um, with this kind of inner confidence that also, I think, needed some validation, which he got from, from Patsy and some friends to continue with his artwork and then to incorporate more and more of his personal stories, um, both as a way of dealing with um, struggling with and reckoning with the trauma he'd been through, but also to commemorate, remember, celebrate some of the people that he knew in Cuthbert, Georgia, who he loved so much, and he wanted to represent them in the paintings. He wanted to paint the juke joints. He wanted to paint the pool rooms as a way of um, remembering and enjoying some of the um, beautiful moments that he enjoyed with the community in, in Cuthbert. Winfred Rembrandt's posthumous memoir is called Chasing Me to My Grave. Thank you both so much for sharing his story with us today. Uh, Patsy Rembert, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Erin Kelly, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your interest. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show Elements for this week were produced and edited by Robert Baldwin III, Alejandra Marquez-Jance, Courtney Dorning, Ashley Lizenby, Melissa Gray, Jan Stewart, Alexander Turk, Todd Munt, Jill Ryan, Mark Rivers, Rena Advani, and Chad Campbell. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward? And what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at The Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to The Indicator podcast from NPR.